It's Wednesday, October 3rd. Welcome to Market Fuller. I'm Chris Allen. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Pro, Brian Hinman, and from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager. The Conquering Heroes, back from New York City. Feels good. Good to see you guys. Uh, We are going to talk about the business of beer. We are going to dip into the Fool mailbag, but we are going to start with Apple, because the Wall Street Journal is reporting that the rumored iPad mini is actually real and being built as we speak. Suppliers confirmed to the Wall Street Journal that production began last month on the iPad mini. It's going to have a 7.8-inch screen. Fortune magazine reports that media invites are going to be sent out a week from today. Brian, the device could be available as early as October 22nd. This is They're not messing around over there at Apple. I do not expect to get an invite. <laughs> No, I wasn't thinking we'd get invites. But I'm saying like real media people would get invites. Or, yeah, real media people would. What do you think about this? Do you think this is this is sort of always been in the works, or do you think to some degree the maps fiasco that we've seen in the past couple of weeks maybe added a level of urgency for Apple and they tried to speed this up a little bit to to change the narrative? It's worrying for me in that this is a little bit of an incremental move and not a revolutionary move. And that is something that is a sign of an also-ran tech company. You would sort of expect this news to come from Microsoft or HP or Dell or something like that, not from Apple. Uh, It's not clear to me that if you've already got an iPhone and you've already got an iPad and you've already got a Mac, that you're going to need this. So when I think about what the the purpose this serves, I'm coming up with two things. Uh, I don't think Maps has a ton to do with it. I think it's more the Kindle Fire uh, element where uh, you know Amazon has thrown out a low price device for entertainment and consumption, and uh, Apple is trying to fill a price gap there. Uh, the other area that I see this filling uh, is perhaps in retail. Um, so there's a big shift going on, or maybe it's not a big shift now, but it's definitely growing in that retailers are switching uh, cash registers mm-hmm. uh, and they're using you know iPads or iDevices uh, to make checkout easier. Um, you're seeing this with JCPenney. You're seeing this uh, Urban Outfitters just switched. Um, it makes a little more sense for you know your floor employees to be able to carry around a device that they can sort of operate with one hand uh, rather than have something that requires two hands to use. But again, we're only you know losing what an inch and a half on the screen here. So uh, I feel like I'm stretching to to make that point. Joe, what do you think? I agree. It's definitely a me too offering. That's a follow on. It's not a big innovation, and they're following on the you know heels of many other people. Been putting out tablets in this form factor for a while. There are already great tablets in this space right now. The Google Nexus 7 has gotten great reviews. People are very happy with it at this price point. Kindle Fire has done comparably well in terms of reviews for the price point. So there's not you know, a sense of immediacy for an Apple product here. And strategically, I'm not sure that this makes a lot of sense just dollars and cents wise. You know, When you think about Kindle Fire HD, we know Amazon is roughly selling near cost, around $199. So even though Apple has scale advantages, it's tough to picture they're going to make a heck of a lot of margin on a comparably sized tablet at 199 Meanwhile, you've got plenty of people that are buying the 499 tablet from them, uh, the iPad, and they're going to be trading down to the 199 tablet. Well, that's a whole lot of gross profit that's got left on the table. So 
if I hear what you're saying that it's not revolutionary and and certainly you know the me too aspect but is is the flip side of that that they don't actually need it to be that big a hit because increasingly I think certainly on the phone side people are looking at Apple's ecosystem whereas you know 5 10 years ago the the cost of switching your phone was not that great but now if you're locked into the iPhone and you've got your iTunes library there's a greater switching cost that goes on there. Brian, what do you think? Yes, you're absolutely <laughs> right about that. Uh, you know, Apple is still an iPhone company. More than 50% of sales come from the iPhone. And, uh, you know, if if you are already using, you know, iOS and you are already uh, deep into the apps that you get from, from iTunes, then sure, there is benefit there uh, to Apple to, you know, locking you in in one other way. Yeah, I mean, I would think of this product as almost like a BMW 1 Series or what the 3 Series has been for a long time. They're trying to get you in with a low-level, high-quality product that's relatively affordable and hopefully trade you up on it. I mean, this is 199 and I know people talk about the iPhone being $199. That is not true. The iPhone is 650 base if you want to buy it unlocked. The reason it's so cheap is because it's carrier-subsidized, uh, so... You know, if Apple could get you in on this cheaper product, get you in the ecosystem, build it up a little bit, and just keep you as a lifetime customer, then there's a lot of value there. I think one other concern here that uh, we don't know a lot about yet, though, is the potential stress that this might cause on Apple suppliers. Um, all that I've been able to find right now online is that the screen is going to be different than the screen that's in the you know hoity-toity iPad. Uh, you mean the one that Joe has? The in one that Joe him? is staring at and I'm on his the oldie. <laughs> Um, but it's not as though currently Apple's uh, many of Apple's suppliers have a ton of extra uh, capacity uh, to be churning out these devices, and obviously, though you know many of them have proven the willingness to break their own backs uh, and you know the willingness to eat margin to do business with Apple. So uh, it'll be just interesting to see how it plays out. All right, we will keep our eyes on that, and it, you know, if anyone at Apple is listening, because we're on iTunes, Market Foolery's on iTunes. If you want to drop us a media invite. Radio at fool.com. We're, you know, I'm not saying we'll go. In fact, you know what? That's why we should be invited. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, a buddy's getting married. It's like, hey, look, man, just invite me to your wedding. I'm not going to go. I'll send you a gift. So, Apple, if you're listening, just, you know, drop us an immediate invite. Strong plea, Chris. Radio. <laughs> By strong, you mean pathetic. <laughs> For the first time since 2008, U.S. beer shipments are up. Yeah. After three straight years of declining sales, beer, sh- uh, beer shipments rose 2% in the first eight months of 2012, uh, and credit for this, guys, is going largely to craft brewers, not the big guys out there. What do we think of this? Is this is this a leading indicator of, of a recovery? Like, What does this say to you? Other I mean, I'm for it. <laughs> you're for more beer and you're yeah. against less beer? Yeah. I mean, in terms of the economy, I think where you're really seeing the dollar flow comeback is with the younger 20-something, 30-something crowd who are heavy beer drinkers. And it's been a really tough economy for the last few years for that group. You know, people coming out of college, unable to find jobs. There have been a lot of layoffs of, of lower paid workers, people in their 20s and early 30s. And it's been tough. And I would read this as a bit of a you know, ironically, I would, I would read this depressant uh, sales boost is somewhat of a positive that the economy is starting to come around for that block, that you know, group of people. Brian, what do you think? Because the, as I said, the 
the credit for this boost is going to the craft brewers. But when you look at the stock charts, uh, sort of year to date, um, it's not, for example, Boston Beer Company, which makes Sam Adams. That stock is flat year to date. It's the big guys. It's Anheuser-Busch and SAB Miller and Grupo Modelo. They're the ones, at least from the standpoint of, of the stock performance, they're the ones who are really kind of crushing it this year. I think there are a couple things going on here. Uh, number one, it's it's become a little bit of a strategy shift for the big guys to take smaller stakes in some of these craft brewers. Uh, you know, they take minority stakes so that they can retain their identity, but they help out the craft brewers with distribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's really going to pump up the craft, the craft brew volumes uh, that flow through the system. The other reason that the big guys are doing really well, I think, is because they have access to uh, China, uh, China is now the number one beer consumer. Uh, Chris, did you know that China consumes 11,600 Olympic-sized pools worth of beer every year? (laughs) Where do you get a stat like that? I converted it. (laughs) You did? (laughs) Very clever. Uh, How much time do you have on your hands that you're just working out Olympic pool (laughs) mathematics? Uh, I I make time for the important things. (laughs) Uh, so, so anyway, they've got they've got access to China. They've got access to the fast growing beer markets uh, because uh, they have the resources uh, and are starting to put in place the distribution. So, uh, I think that is playing into uh, you know part of their strength as well. By the way, I like to think it's stuff like that that you never hear on Bloomberg. That's why Market Foolery is the number one listener rated business news podcast on iTunes. It's because of factoids like him and us bringing to the table. Um, Joe, when you look at this industry sort of writ large, does it interest you? Is is it something that you think as an investor, as an analyst, you have an advantage here? Or is it something that you're, you're happy to consume the product, but it's not really in an industry that you're interested in? I do think I have an edge here, just given my background from working in the industry. It's kind of the, the beverage business is the family business, and I spend a lot of time thinking about the industry. Unfortunately, it hasn't really done anything for me. I recommended Molson Coors to inside value members about two years ago Uh, they've gone essentially nowhere and i still think the shares are cheap but you know it's a tough capital intensive industry and it's not easy to win and even the biggest players struggle with those challenges and i think in molson core's case you know they've just been limping along in north america and you can only cost cut your way so far and i think it at some point, the market's going to get pretty frustrated with that. But, last I mean, que- for right now, I'm still down with it. Last question on beer, because you guys are beer drinkers. I am not. Um, but when I go to the grocery store this time of year, it's it just seems like it's an explosion of pumpkin. Pumpkin beer, like sort of these autumnal beers. Is that something that... You- like, does that matter? Do you guys look forward to that? Like, oh, it's October. Chris, the pumpkin beers are Chris, here. it's a wonderful time to be alive. <laughs> So, you, so you're bullish on the autumnal beers. I am, uh, and one one thing that beer drinkers need to know out there is that not all pumpkin beers have pumpkin in them. Many of them just have the delicious parts of pumpkin pie, and that's why they're so darn good. Do you have a favorite? I do. Shipyard Pumpkinhead. Uh, it's brewed in Portland, Maine. Uh, my wife and I used to uh, drive up to New England, buy a couple cases, so we would have it. But now, uh, Shipyard is has somehow gotten better distribution and it's more mainstream uh, and you can you can buy it almost anywhere now you can always drop us an email radio at fool.com is the way to get a hold of us 
particularly if you work at Apple and you're looking to invite us to the iPad mini event. Uh, email from Matthew Jones in Manchester, England. He writes, I'm a UK listener. I love your show. And although I know we have our own podcast, uh, that's Money Talk with our man David Quo over in London. The Quo knows. The Quo knows. Uh, could any of the US team recommend a London-based share? Thanks. We have a UK-based investment opportunity. Again, we're not making specific recommendations here, but if we're going to add a couple of stocks that Matthew can put on his watch list, Joe, I'll just start with you. What do you got? Well, fortunately, I speak English, so this was an easy one for me to, <laughs> to dig into. One of my favorites out of the UK is Reckitt Benkiser. It's basically the British Procter & Gamble. So it's a lot like B&G in terms of being consumer-focused, household goods-focused, but frankly, a lot better run and with a lot higher margins, and I think it's actually a pretty good takeout candidate for P&G at some point. But just a few brands they have you'd probably recognize at home, uh, Cal- Calgon, Clearasil, uh, Durex, Lysol. There's a lot that you know investors, probably consumers can connect with, and they have regular demand, and I think that it's a great little business. It'll probably stay that way. Brian, what about you? Sure. I'm going to go with Tesco for Matthew. Uh, Tesco is the leading food retailer in the UK. They have about 30% market share. It's actually the world's third largest retailer. Um, But they also have uh, access or they're they're entering markets, recently entered markets in Eastern Europe and China. uh, And they're expanding just from uh, traditional food to hypermarkets and an online presence as well. So uh, this is sort of the established Walmart um, in the UK right now. but I have another stock as well. It is not listed in, in on the London Exchange, but they have an interesting uh, UK tie that I thought Matthew might might like. The company is Compass Minerals. They uh, mm. primarily mine rock salt, and uh, they own the largest rock salt mine in, in the UK. Uh, it's a Winsford Cheshire mine. Uh, the mine has uh, production capacity of 1.5 million tons of rock salt uh, annually, and uh, the company is really smart about what they're doing with the empty mine space. Uh, they've sort of started a little side business where they store all sorts of uh, stuff that you want out of the way in these empty mine, abandoned mine shafts. Uh, so they primarily do document storage, but they're looking to you know expand that business elsewhere as well. Nuclear waste, is that? Is it's that? a possibility, yeah. I'm just uh, th- those both sound like great ideas. The only thing I'm just slightly disappointed that you didn't put the 1.5 million tons of rock salt <laughs> in terms of swimming pools. I dropped but the ball. Brian Hinman, Joe Mager, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 